I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey everybody! Uh, this week we're gonna do something a little bit different. Uh, instead of talking to someone in the world of health sciences, which we usually do on these routine checkup episodes, we're actually going to release a conversation that I just recently had on my other podcast, Turn Me On. Um, and for folks who aren't aware, Turn Me On podcast is a show that uh, I host with my wife, and uh, mostly we have conversations with guests about. Um, sex, sexuality, um, relationship issues, etc. Um, but this past week, we we released an episode on Turn Me On, speaking with Matthew Remsky, who is a cult survivor and a, uh, a sort of uh, uh, a critic in the world of like wellness and spirituality. And he's also the co-host of the podcast Conspirituality, which is a, an incredible podcast. I highly suggest you check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, the conversation that we had with Matthew was all about the sort of cult dynamics within the world of conspirituality. And it, the conversation was really fucking interesting. And it took, a, it took a direction that I wasn't anticipating it to go, which was a big kind of... Um, we, we talked a lot about this the similarities between cults and cult dynamics within the world of like QAnon mm-hmm. and conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that we talked about was, was having conversations with people in your life who may have gotten swallowed up within the world of conspiracy, which mm-hmm. I think is considering the time that we find ourselves in right now, more common than it's ever been more common yeah. than it's ever been since the satanic panic back in the fucking 80s, yeah. right? I mean, that, like QAnon is the new satanic panic. And the one thing that, the thing that I, uh, you know, listening to that episode and the context that I uh, felt or I feel is important for uh, our listeners and where there's like a lot of value in this conversation from a health uh, angle and perspective is around the the vaccination conversation yeah. that is, uh, you know, going on in the world right now. And and the the really big divide between vaccinated, unvaccinated, and those two those two sectors and uh, sects of people clashing with each other, and it's really creating a really really big divide. And this is a conversation we were having last week while we were having lunch around the idea that you know do we do we want to destroy the relationships we have in our lives because of a of a difference that is a big difference right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 20 years from now, looking back, is it going to be 
you know, do you, do you, do you want your relationship to crumble based around one thing when you've known a person inside out for many years mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, you've, you've, you've got a, you've got a relationship there. And so there was a really, really great piece in this conversation around how to effectively speak with people that, that you are feeling like they've been, you know, they've gone down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And how do you approach a conversation with that person without making them feel silly or alienated or, or stupid and to maintain that relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Matthew Remsky's really, he's really great at like at breaking that down in a way that's, that's really easy to understand, but he's a, he's an incredibly smart guy. And I remember Jerry, when, when you recorded this episode, you said that might be one of that might be one of the best, if not the best, podcast conversations I've had in six years yeah. across Termion and Sick Boy. Yeah. And I knew as soon as you said that that we wanted to make sure that this podcast was played on the Sick Boy feed. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So here you go, listeners. Uh, it's it's fucking awesome. It yeah. is a, this is a really great conversation. I, I do hope you enjoy it. And one thing that I also want to say is that in the conversation that we had with Matthew, um, he brought up. Uh, a book that was written by a woman named Yanya Lalik. And um, she's an American sociologist and a writer. And she wrote a book called Escaping Utopia, which is basically all about deprogramming children who are born into cults. And I'm very, very excited to say that we are going to be recording here on Sick Boy with Yanya in uh, the... In the coming weeks, so mm-hmm. so expect that episode to come out. Um, uh, I think I think like late October, early November. Really excited for that. So, folks, uh, again, this is a conversation from Termion Podcast. If you haven't listened to the show before, I'm just going to plug it right here. It's a podcast with me and my wife. We have lots of fun. You can find it wherever you find podcasts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We didn't agree to this. Hey, what? Hey, got to give that <laughs> shameless plug. Uh, hope you enjoy it, and uh, we will uh, see you on the other side. It's both of us. <laughs> and we're here together to introduce you to this week's guest, Matthew Remsky, an old friend of ours, actually. Yeah. Matthew Remsky is a um, longtime meditator and yoga practitioner, and he facilitates programming for yoga trainings, including yoga philosophy, which is how we were introduced to Matthew. Um, he is also the author of eight books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. That's a lot of books. It's more books than I've ever written more books than I've maybe ever read. (laughs) Um, Perhaps most interestingly for our listeners to hear, uh, Matthew is a cult survivor and he is also a podcaster, a host of the podcast Conspirituality. Great podcast. Yeah, it's it's in their words, in their description, a weekly study of converging right-wing conspiracy theories and faux progressive wellness utopianism. Hmm. Right up our alley. Yeah. We like that kind of stuff. We were really excited to sit down with Matthew. What a dream guest. We talked about some really fascinating things from his very brilliant mind, so we're excited for you to hear it. Yeah. No uh, no word of a lie. Might be one of my favorite podcast recordings I've ever had over the last six years of doing this as a career. And just knowing Matthew, too, it's like scratching the surface yeah. of yeah. what we could get into. Yeah. So buckle up. Some mind-bending stuff coming your way. Hope you enjoy it. And as always, we'll see you on the other side.
Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's dive right into it. This is going to be really fun. Um, we're speaking with Matthew Remsky, uh, someone that we've met. I, I mean, I feel like it's been ages ago. Our cro- yeah. our paths crossed in the right. in the yoga world. Um, all the way back when Bridie was uh, uh, very heavily involved in the Moksha community or now Moto community, uh, running the teacher facilitating facilitating the teacher trainings. And uh, we right before we started recording, Matthew, we were talking about how you you treated me, you gave me an Ayurvedic treatment, right. and I I it was so long ago. I have I have the worst memory ever. But the one thing I do remember was you were like you were like anything that's an expectorant is very important for you. And, mm. and, uh, one of the things, one of the things that you said was a okay was scotch. And I was like, well, <laughs> Noted. well if he said I can do it, <laughs> right. uh, um, but, uh, we're really excited to have you on the podcast, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the work that you do, Matthew, um, uh, maybe just fill, fill our listeners in, tell us about, um, tell us about the, you know, the world of writing that you, seem to be very involved in. Uh, tell us about Conspirituality, the podcast that you're also a part of. Right. Yeah. Um, so after maybe 12 years of gig work, but also studio ownership in the yoga world and getting into the position where I was facilitating, um, you know, teacher training program segments in yoga philosophy and, you know, the history of Ayurveda and things like that. Um, I started to turn my attention to the social dynamics of yoga communities and Buddhist communities and wellness spaces. Um, and so, uh, around 2012 or so, um, the news broke that, uh, a former, um, fellow student of mine, uh, in an organization called Diamond Mountain Institute in Arizona had died. His name was Ian Thorson. And when I looked at the news reports, uh, it said that he had actually died of malnutrition and dehydration in the Arizona desert outside of the retreat boundaries of our my former teacher slash cult leader. Uh, his name is Michael Roach. He's still doing his thing, by the way. Uh, oh, wow. And I kind of dove into this, this guerrilla investigative journalism to try to figure out what had happened to this person that I had known. Um, I wrote a series of articles about that. And that kind of changed my position within the wellness world uh, to that of cultural critic, which is not, you know, the best way of making a living, but um, (laughs) it started to get a little bit more serious when I got some, you know, real assignments from the Walrus magazine to cover things like um, the uh, abuse within Ashtanga Yoga, founded Mm. by Patabi Joyce. And then also, uh, I did a long piece uh, about Shambhala Buddhism. So, um, Really, uh, the Conspirituality podcast has come out of the last maybe six or seven years of, of work as a journalist at the edges of the wellness world looking at toxic social dynamics and, and uh, cults. Um, and, and, you know, when the pandemic exploded in the spring of 2020, um, what we began to see, my colleagues and I, 
just on a daily basis was the same charismatic figures within mm. wellness, yoga, and Buddhist spaces beginning to capitalize upon this massive social crisis to present their content as though it was going to save the world. So um, these were dynamics that that we were familiar with, and we started to report them out. Mm. Can you can you just lay out the the meaning of the word conspirituality? Yeah. So. Um, it was first defined by two academics, uh, David Voas, who's a professor of uh, the sociology of religion, uh, and Charlotte Ward, who's kind of an independent researcher in England, uh, in an essay in 2011 called The Emergence of Conspirituality. And I'll send the link to you for the full paper, but uh, and your listeners can take a look at it. You, all you have to do is read the abstract, which I've read so many times, I think I can probably, I've probably got by heart, which is something <laughs> like, um, you know, typically we think of the worlds of right-wing conspiracy theories and new age spirituality as being politically and culturally opposed. But we see and will go on to show that they are interweaving in some interesting ways. Uh, and we're going to call that conspirituality. And they basically paint this picture of uh, a dovetailing of, you know, uh, male-oriented, politicized political paranoia um, and the New Age promise of spiritual transcendence and renewal mainly marketed towards and by female influencers uh, and so there's this gender dynamic within conspirituality that is sort of, you know, mutually supportive, but also, um, uh, you know, quite, uh, uh, I would say, charged, uh, mm. where the, the, the cynicism of everything is going wrong is really, um, you know, mitigated and, and comforted and nurtured by you know, the divine feminine promise that all is unfolding as it should. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that is all very abstract. I'm kind of quoting from the abstract of, of the paper, but, you know, the a really clear example would be that, you know, within days of the WHO announcing the COVID-19 pandemic or describing it as a pandemic, uh, there's... Uh, an influencer that we cover called Kelly Brogan, who works as a, or she used to work in Manhattan in a very swanky holistic psychiatry practice um, where her specialty was helping people naturally withdraw from psychotropic medications uh, through, you know, holistic practices and, and Kundalini yoga. Mm. So whether or not that was successful is a whole other sort of topic. But um, what's important about Kelly Brogan is that, she uh, very persuasively, as far as her followers uh, went or, or felt, laid out this case that uh, the pandemic was an organized and, you know, conspiracy-driven phenomenon that was uh, purposed for, you know, state control over people's bodies, but that the fact that it was accelerating or and that and that you know oppression was rising and she made references to you know you know we're seeing the same kind of you know dehumanization measures that preceded the holocaust so mm. that was 
right back there. But part of her promise was that, you know, all of this social strife is actually an indication that, you know, it's the time for us to spiritually transform and to adopt a new vision of world oneness and to recognize our inner divinity and how that that was how, how that was going to save everything. Um, so uh, whenever I would just say to the listeners that that whenever you have uh, somebody in uh, new age, spirituality, wellness, alt health zones, who um, makes grand declarative statements about how horrible a particular social situation is, or how deceived everyone is, is by their governments or by the medical industrial complex or however they phrase it. But then at the same time, they promise a kind of pathway towards spiritual salvation. Hmm. You're, you're hitting on conspirituality. That's what that is. Right, right. And why is it so seductive? Like, why are, like, because I feel, you know, I've never been alive at a time that's felt more divisive. And when I look at the people, you know, before this, this phase of life, I remember the big thing being like, watch out for your echo chamber. Like, you know, you're only surrounding people with people who say the same things as you. And now I look at like my Facebook feed or, you know, and I'm, and I'm like kind of shocked at who's, Mm. who's gone that way. And, and I don't, none of them are like very significant relationships in my life. So I don't feel like, Oh, how am I going to bridge this gap? How am I going to get this? How am I going to quote unquote, like save this person um, or get my relationship, you know, back. But, but you're seeing enough people within your relative social circle that, mm-hmm. you know, that there's people that, you know, that very much are in that position and are going, in relationships yeah. like romantic relationships, mm-hmm. people who, right. who have all of a sudden, and it's, it, it's just like, what, it, what are the qualities that, 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 that contribute to that buy-in? Yeah. So I think conspirituality is extremely compelling for a number of interlocking reasons. Uh, some of them are political economic and they have to do with, you know, intense uh, situational pressures like the pandemic. And then some of them are more deeply ingrained with the kind of training that uh, the yoga Buddhist wellness industry subliminally offers its students and not without good results over many years. So let me just start there. Um, if you spent a number of years getting good results from your yoga practice, you probably ran into an interlocking set of three, I don't know, axioms or perhaps um, faith faith statements. And the three would be something like, uh, nothing is really as it seems. Um, secondly, uh, everything is connected. And thirdly, um, everything happens for a purpose. And so there, these are very kind of compelling, uh, nurturing, pro-social even 
axioms by which people can, you know, change their perspective on a situation that looks mm. like it might be, um, you know, uh, negative, or it might lift their cynicism, it might give them a sense of, well, you know, it really does make sense for me to work in small ways at this, you know, very big problem towards you know, one goal at a time. Uh, maybe it really does uh, make sense that my actions in this part of my life will impact, you know, uh, realities in another part of my life. And so these are like really hopeful axioms. And they also, according to the political scientist, My Michael Barkun, are also the three pillars of conspiratorial thinking. Mm. Uh, nothing is as it seems. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, you, you think that uh, the Obamas are, you know, neoliberal middle managers, but actually, you know, they're both drinking blood in the basement with Hillary Clinton. Um, everything is connected, you know, well, when uh, Trump says uh, tippy top shape, he's actually sending a secret code to mm -hmm. the, you know, anti deep state operatives and so on. Uh, and that everything happens for a reason um, allows for, you know, influencers who are using the tools of QAnon, for example, to always uh, suggest that some sort of prediction is coming true so that the story will round up in some kind of pleasing way. And that's the other thing that's compelling, which is that um, conspirituality offers stories that end. Uh, they offer, it offers um, the notion of, you know, personal freedom in very vaguely defined but quite triumphant terms. Uh, it offers the notion of enlightenment. It offers the the vision of you know the utopian society in which everybody is you know uh, medically self sovereign or whatever. Uh, it offers very compelling visions of uh, society that are not this kind of like patchwork of micromanaged solutions that that you know we are used to in our very highly surveilled and organized lives so um you know it's i would say that conspirituality is also really compelling because you know situationally uh everybody who is working in wellness spaces or was were heavy consumers in those in wellness spaces we're suddenly locked up at home in the spring of 2020. And mm. the only thing that they had access to that looked like their wellness world was through the screen. And suddenly um, the, the real estate of, uh, you know, cultural value was super, super expensive and super uh, competitive. And so it made sense for, wellness influencers to begin to compete for eyeballs mm. by pushing the boundaries of their content for reaching for things that were provocative. And so we saw all kinds of people starting to use language that sounded like it was warning followers away from, you know, the agendas of the deep state or, you know, that, that, um, you know, even even subtle expressions of doubt in, you know, what public health officials are saying about the pandemic take on this conspiratorial tone that is actually transgressive 
and therefore it's a little bit sexy. And then, you know, QAnon itself has this entire like sadomasochistic imaginarium that is running underneath it that I think is extremely attractive in, you know, the same way that that vampire fiction is. And so, you know, what what this means is that also that I think there were a lot of people in the wellness world that started sharing conspirituality and then QAnon related content, not necessarily because they understood it or because they even bought off on it, but because it felt charged and yeah. it felt compelling and it felt, you know, topical and it felt urgent. And, and this is why when, you know, I did this big piece for the walrus uh, magazine on, you know, it was called when QAnon came to Canada and you know, I looked at top influencers like Daniel Laporte um, and, uh, you know, people who had hundreds of thousands of followers. And then I also looked at very small time influencers in the yoga world who might have gone through four or five months of posting save the children memes or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then they and then they stopped. But they also like built audiences through that. Mm. But the thing is, is that when I reached out to them and I said, so what did that mean to you? Nobody wanted to talk about it because I think at a certain point, uh, there were a lot of people that kind of got hooked into that content stream that then had to disclaim it because they realized it was going somewhere really toxic. So I, I, you know, with all the, with all the research that you've done into this world, especially over the last, you know, couple of years, um, with the Trump administration and, and everything that's happened with COVID and just like this uprise and QAnon and all this wild stuff. Um, if there, have you put much thought into the ways in which someone who is close to somebody who has seemingly been swept up and fell into this rabbit hole, like effective ways in trying to communicate to that person to kind of bring them back to reality. You know, cause like when I, I, I don't uh, like Bridie, like I don't know anyone super directly that has bought into this stuff so deeply that like, you know, they just seem like a, a, a lost cause, but I can imagine, I can imagine myself in that scenario. And in imagining that it feels very daunting. The, the thought of trying to, trying to communicate to someone who is so deeply swept up in all of this. Do you, yeah. do you have like tips or, or, you know, I, suggestions I do. I, I do. All of them are works in progress, but it's something that we kind mm. of obsess about because it's a, like, it's probably the most important question of all. Um, and, you know, I am a cult survivor and, that's how what got me into cult research. And I start answering that question from the perspective of um, I'm not saying that that, you know, being involved in online conspirituality movements is necessarily cult like, but there are some similarities. And mm. definitely people have compared QAnon to, to a, a cultic organization, although there's no leader and there's a whole bunch of complications there. But um, one axiom in cult recovery is that there are three groups of people that are super important for the person who is trying to find their bearings again. Um, one group of people 
is those who have been in the same group that you've been in, but they've left. Uh, if you can talk, if you can talk to them, if you have any access to them, that's fantastic because they'll know what your values are and they'll know why you found this thing so attractive. And they'll also have some insight into how it probably didn't serve your needs. Uh, the second group is, you know, members of any similar group that have also left. Uh, and this really operates on the, the principle of, you know, the, the, the tendency to believe in one conspiracy theory is predictive of uh, the tendency to believe in two or several. And so there's a lot of people, there's a, for example, there's a lot of people who used to be 9-11 truthers who are doing like on the ground work, trying to help ex-QAnon people try to figure out what happened. To them, mm. right? So people who believed that 9-11 was an inside job, people who believed earnestly that the World Trade Center uh, Building 7 was, you know, brought down hours later in a controlled demolition and not through fire damage, uh, you know, people who who believed that vigorously for years um, and then just graduated out of it when they saw better evidence, uh, they are very effective at talking to the person who is convinced that, you know, QAnon is some kind of coherent uh, philosophy. Uh, and then the third group of people, and this is, I think, most important and probably most accessible for uh, your listeners and the general public is, you know, the people who knew you before you got involved mm. are really important because they can remember what you valued before. Uh, they can say, you can remember going to high school with them. Uh, you can remember, you know, uh, your, your, you know, previous social groups, you can remember what the person used to do for, for work or for fun. Uh, you know, where you used to like to go for walks. And this all boils down to if your friend has been caught up in, you know, a toxic ideology that seems to be, you know, counterfactual and addictive and, um, uh, and 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 perhaps even dangerous to them if they wind up being anti-vaxxers, uh, then you know what's most important is that you seek to preserve your relationship with them because the security of the friendship is something that this new group will not offer them. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it can't because it's it generally these are um, very. Um, uh, uh, you know, th thin, thinly socially connected, but ideologically extreme and shrill uh, kind of um, uh, sociologies that don't really provide stability in relationship or friendship. And so if you really do have social capital with somebody, um, the number one priority is to maintain uh, the friendship beyond the issue that you're actually worried about. Mm. Um, and, and then when you're talking with them, you know, the last thing that you want to do is make them feel like they're stupid because for two reasons, first of all, um, the, the, that's how they got recruited into the ideology was by somebody very forcefully telling them that they were ignorant about something mm. and offering them some sort of, you know, new revelation or view on life. Um, so you, you can't really get them out of that by replicating that dynamic. 
Um, and then secondly, you don't call them stupid because whatever they've done, it makes sense in some way. Um, you know, the thing about uh, people who are very seduced by the promises of spirituality uh, or who are really uh, seduced by um, the, the, the arguments of the anti-vax movement, they have good reasons to be afraid of, you know, uh, medical care. They have really good reasons to be afraid of, you know, violations of their agency. Um, they're right about a lot of things. They know that we live in very imperfect societies that are rife with inequality and institutional abuse. And so, you know, I think all of that has to be accepted and validated to the point where perhaps the person can see that whatever solution they've been sold by the influencer doesn't really answer their core question. Mm. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. For the influencer, so we've had a couple of questions come in from listeners about, you know, how do you handle particular sets of like ethical situations in the yoga room? Um, you know, I'm I'm I've just gotten into massage school and I am we're talking about ethics and 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 it's very philosophical and and not always clear, but it does seem like in the yoga world very often these teachers, whether or not they um, intend to take advantage of these roles of teacher student like on a pedestal, it it seems to happen so frequently, and these people like started out wanting to deliver and help and care for people, where does that like happen? Where does that schism sort of go off the rails? Yeah. I mean, um, let me, let me, let me go backwards towards that question through the influencer problem and conspirituality. Uh, everybody that we've covered on the podcast weaponizes a kind of charisma because yeah. that's the only real currency that exists in unregulated professions, right? So, you know, if you are a uh, Reiki master, uh, or you are you have learned a meditation technique, or you have been initiated so that you ostensibly have permission to teach some sort of tantric philosophy. There are no sort of there's no peer review. There's no uh, like process of 
the vetting of the quality of your programming. Um, there's no way of measuring how good your yoga is and how mm -hmm. beneficial it is for anybody mm -hmm. else. Um, we're really in, in most wellness areas, we are in the land of the charismatic economy where the person who for some reason is able to make the, the biggest, the richest, the loudest impression upon the most number of people and create a kind of social dynamic feedback loop that just propels them into, uh, you know, a kind of fame. That's how the economy works. You, you, you don't become a good yoga teacher by, by understanding or attaining some sort of objective, you know, measurable level of knowledge in yoga philosophy. That's just not how it works. And it doesn't happen in any other regulated uh, spirituality, unregulated spirituality or wellness, um, uh, you know, tradition. And so if, if your, your basic question, Bridie, if I understand it is, you know, why do the power dynamics always go south? And I would say that if the baseline economy favors charisma over, you know, uh, credentials and accountability, yeah. then you're, you're already starting off in a really dangerous territory. And, you know, people who gain social capital within these spaces uh, do so, whether they know it or not, by just becoming larger than life, by becoming larger than the people who they are teaching, instead of, you know, fellow citizens with rights and responsibilities and, you know, a college that can, you know, disbar them if they fuck up. So, um, yeah, why does it, why, why is it, why is it toxic? I also think that because we're talking about unregulated industries, it's just the, the whole space is going to self-select for people who can't necessarily complete, um, you know, uh, regimes of education that are, you know, frankly, more uh, boundaried and, and, uh, and disciplined, right? You know, it's like, um, in, I, I remember, I remember, um, we were speaking of Ayurveda earlier, I remember a medical doctor in India telling me that, um, you know, Ayurvedic practitioners who, who graduated from uh, the BAMS degree, which is kind of like the biomedicine equivalent of, of, of an Ayurvedic training. Um, the, the students that got into that stream were the ones who weren't, who, whose marks weren't good enough to get into medical school. <laughs> uh, and so, so I think that, uh, you know, yoga and wellness spaces are populated by people who either don't want to, uh, discipline themselves into, uh, you know, a really sort of peer oriented professionalization, or they can't, or it doesn't occur to them that that's what they should do. And, and also, I don't know if you've noticed, but like, there's a heck of a lot of uh, people who wind up being really good yoga teachers on the strength of them being excellent performers using yeah. skills that they learned in the entertainment industry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that I like, I don't want to, I don't want to toot my own horn, but, uh, I was really great at Ryerson theater school and I'm not going <laughs> to lie that really did help me in the, in the hot room when I was teaching yoga, like, especially my, because you didn't really like teaching. I fucking hated teaching, but you just 
we're good at I it. I was good at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, to to this to this point, and this this might be veering a little bit like outside the realm of of what you're comfortable talking with, but but maybe not. But this this idea of like charisma being attached to these sorts of people that that seem to gain a lot of success, it it it's making me think about um about how like sex is often like weaponized uh among these like charismatic leaders you know i think about like like the david koresh of uh, koresh's of the world or like the keith ranieri's and it, like anybody anybody who's been a cult leader it always seems like sex is somehow involved some sort of like sexual abuse is like like top tier a part of the 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 intricate sort of machinery that that makes that entire thing run but there seems to be a lot of similarities in the in the yoga community like you know Bikram Chowdhury for one example um very charismatic very problematic uh you know like a lot of a lot of sexual abuse over the years yeah, a rapist right yeah, yeah 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 absolutely and so like is that is, is that tied in directly to this like this charisma that that you speak of it I mean, do those two things go hand in hand? Like, where, where does how does sexual abuse play a role in in cult dynamics? Well, I mean, the educated rape culture answer to that is that sexual abuse is an expression of power. Uh, that sexual abuse itself is never really about sexuality, uh, and that as you say, it's kind of a, a weaponization of the, you know, closest, dearest, most intimate parts of ourselves towards facilitating an increasing power differential. Um, I mean, it, I think that the cult studies answer is kind of interesting in terms of the role of sexual abuse the person who wants to maintain social control over, uh, you know, an increasingly devoted population is going to be really benefited to the extent that they meddle in the members' sexual lives. And that can take a lot of different forms. Um, it can take the form of direct assault, uh, which then might be rationalized by the members as a kind of special contact with the holy leader. Mm. Um, or it can come in the form of rules where the uh, the leader and the group decide that, okay, nobody is going to have sexual intimacy with anybody else in this group. Um, and the reasoning there is, or the, the social control mechanism there is that, you know, sexuality and intimacy will be one of the ways in which people form, you know, bonds with, you know, whether they're pair bonds or, or in greater numbers that will actually compete against the authority mm -hmm. of the leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, another way of doing that is for the leader to demand that everybody has sex with everybody else all the time, specifically that pair bonds get broken up, uh, that, you know, people are, are, you know, divorced and married randomly to each other. Uh, and this also scrambles the capacity for the members to form secure attachments that would actually challenge 
the uh, bonds that they 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 are supposed to have with the leader. Mm. And so, um, yeah, sex is weaponized because I think it uh, is just extremely powerful with regard to uh, whether or not uh, human beings either alone or in pairs or in threes or fours are able to uh, actually create their own sources of meaning and connection with each other Mm. uh, because the group doesn't want that to happen. Mm. When it comes to um, uh, like rehabilitation, for folks that have been sucked up into a cult or some sort of community that that um, obviously has done like a lot of harm, and this person is now out of the you know they've been released of the 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 hooks that were within them. What what exists for resources for folks that are that are trying to like deprogram or 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 rehabilitate after something that can be so traumatic and and so you know, that can last for so many years. Like what, 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 what are, are there, are there like specific networks that exist for people to reach out to? Yeah. I mean, the online world has, uh, you know, melted our brains in some ways and pervade and provided a lot of, um, connective resources and others. And I would say that some of the most positive, um, survivor support networks that I've encountered in the journalism that I've done on, on cults have emerged in Facebook groups. There's, there's one in particular that's, that's pretty extraordinary. It's called Satya. uh, And it's a Facebook group that's run on behalf of uh, former members of Shivananda Yoga. So this is another organization that I did. I did a big investigation on um, because it you know has a history of intergenerational abuse, uh, and they were able to get this. They they were able to not only platform and uh, and 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 amplify the voices of survivors in the group, but they were also able to crowdfund and hire uh, a set of independent investigators on their own uh, to take and corroborate the testimonies of the organization's survivors and then publish publish those results uh, along with all of the all of the evidence you know this is it wasn't it wasn't there was a there was a retired lawyer on this team but you know often when you know, an institution is confronted with with accusations of widespread abuse. They'll hire you know a third party investigative you know legal team to you know do interviews and so on. Well, these are members of Shivananda Yoga, people who went to trainings there, people who got their teaching certificates there, who got together, put together something like twenty or thirty thousand uh, dollars to pay for this team to do six months of research. Uh, to produce this really professional report that said, yep, all of these things actually happened. Uh, mm. And, you know, what are you going to do about it? It's kind of an extraordinary story. Mm. Um, but, you know, more, more, more generally, uh, and sort of less, um, I said, I, I guess, less localized, there are enormous networks uh, now that serve people who are either trying to get out of the QAnon 
fever dream or their family members. There's a, there's a subreddit called QAnon casualties that I think has something like a quarter of a million members. Uh, And when I interviewed, you know, just last year, when I interviewed the, um, the, one of the moderators for it, Mike Rains, it was only at 60,000 members. So this has just exploded. Mm. Um, Psychotherapeutic resources are um, available, but they're hard to come by because uh, it's not, as far as I know, a distinct topic of study in the in the the colleges that that issue the main certifications. I think that mm. you know there are psychotherapists that can go on to do a specialization in you know the cult literature, but um, you know I, I do this I do this pretty much for a living, and I really only know about four therapists who are specifically trained and experienced in uh, what it means to come out of a cult and what the process is there. God, I, um, I wonder if that's going to change, you know, like, I think like it's going to have to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Over the, over the coming like decade, I feel like that's something that's really like, really there's going to be a need for it. For it. Yeah. Because the thing, the thing is, is that, um, you know, I, 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 I live, I live in a family of psychodynamic psychotherapists. I'm not one myself, but I know enough about the discipline to know that, um, you know, when a person comes to therapeutic in search of therapy, uh, there are whole sectors of the discipline that are oriented towards very carefully listening and building relationship towards modeling better relationship and security, but not necessarily counseling, not necessarily providing educational resources, not intervening in a way to say, hey, well, you know, it sounds like you were in a cult. Uh, Here are some really good books for you to read. And that's its own skill. Um, And and so the people that I refer, you know, I, I get I get hundreds of emails from people coming out of cults and uh, you know, I refer them to these very busy for therapists who are specifically trained in this. But I think you're right, Jeremy, that uh, there are whole sectors of, of psychotherapeutic practice that um, you know, will be encountering more and more clients with these specific histories uh, and, and may want to have uh, you know, more counseling tools on hand. Mm. Well, I, I, that brings up for me, you know, this, this generation of like children Mm. or any, I guess any, any child that's been raised within a cult system or in a conspiracy, uh, perpetuating household Mm. and the difference between that experience developmentally compared to an adult who had like a previous life and previous relationships and things that can anchor them back, Mm -hmm. help anchor them back into reality. And I, I wonder if Matthew, if you know of any sort of examples or, or, or what that process is in terms of children in these dynamics. Hashtag save the children, Bridie. That's, oh, uh, right. That's, yeah. That's oh, it. and we right got there. that email early on because we, we did, uh, we did have a conversation, um, with someone, uh, about, about the, the, um, about pedophilia in regards to what is actually happening in the brain developmentally in utero as a, as a, a theory of like where this pedophilia comes from. And we, we got, we got emails of like, I few. can't believe you're putting this yeah, out there yeah, we when we're, when save the children is like, anyway, yeah. it was just a really bizarre 
situation, but anyway. Yeah, that sounds that sounds that sounds confusing. Um (laughs) so so you're absolutely right that the person who was born into the cultic environment does not have prior resources like that is their world the person who has made the best study of that is uh yanya lalich who has a fantastic book called escaping utopia where she has um case studies of about 60 young adults some of them might still be teenagers some of them are older adults but they all tell stories of how they came out of high demand groups that they were born into and you know these are these are kids that were brought up in in um you know uh fringe mormon groups or in uh yoga groups all kinds of groups so it's sort of cross cultural in that way and um what she focuses on that I find really fascinating and kind of beautiful and inspiring is that um, all of the kids, uh, in order to survive uh, in environments that they don't even really understand as being abusive, um, m- many of them invent alternative worlds as though they were having a normal childhood somewhere. Mm. Uh, they might find an activity that they absorb themselves in, you know, uh, obsessively. They might find a special place that they go to. They might create a story in their heads about a different world that they're actually living in or that a part of them is living in. Uh, and and Lalit shows how it's often on the strength of these stories that there's this sense of a possible other world beyond the sort of strict rules and social controls that that they've grown up with. So uh, that's really cool. There's and and it's a very important uh, field because with um, you know modern yoga and Buddhist uh, wellness cults, we're heading into for some of them third generations. You know, when I was doing the uh, investigative work on Shambhala International, we're talking mm. about three three generations now, uh, and uh, some of the second generation kids, um, they, they feel as though they literally grew up in the kingdom of Shambhala, where you know the 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 flags that Trungpa designed were actually the flags of their country and where, um, you know, they, they actually spent Shambhala money and, you know, they went to Shambhala kindergartens. They lived, they had Shambhala passports for fuck's sake. Uh, they lived in a, just a different world entirely. Uh, and how extraordinary for them to have that world crack apart sort of like it does on the Truman show uh, mm. and for them to realize that, Oh, uh, somebody very ill was at the center of this. And uh, a lot of people knew about it, including perhaps my parents. Uh, and I wasn't really protected from it mm. and uh, very, very difficult road to recovery. And some of the bravest people that I know actually are, are those who have, have had to claw their way out of that situation. Mm. It must be so hard to trust your interpretation of what's going on mm. in the world when you are raised in like a reality. Cause one of the things you said about cre- kids have these activities or these places that they go to 
where they live a different life, it almost seems like they're disassociating from what's been presented as real. Yeah. And I don't know whether there's a technical term for like, um, uh, nurturing or generative dissociation. (laughs) Uh, but, but it sounds like, it sounds like that's what it is, is though the, the, the child is realizes that there's something flat and impossible about the world in which they are trapped and like, I don't know, opening Harry Potter or something like that. Uh, there's, there's the chance to, um, visualize oneself as, Mm -hmm. as, um, you know, being, being able to fly and play Quidditch and, uh, and, 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 and understand who dragons are and what Hagrid is doing and so on. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, yeah, as I said, I don't know if there's a, if there's a positive form of, I mean, I guess we would just call it imagination, right. but, but it's a, but it's a through line through those stories. And, uh, I just find it very, very powerful. Well, Matthew, I got to say this is, uh, this conversation has been absolutely incredible so eye-opening. So, so glad that you took time out of your busy schedule to sit down and, and have a conversation with us and, and our listeners. Um, thank you so much. Let our, let our listeners know how they can keep up with the work that you do, uh, where they can find the podcast, where they can find your writing. Yeah, Conspirituality Podcast is available on all of your regular podcast servers. And uh, I can be found on Medium, just under my name, Matthew Remsky. Uh, and I have a website, MatthewRemsky.com. Uh, t- Twitter, same, it's just my name. And and Facebook. I think also uh, listeners might find our Instagram page interesting. It's Conspirituality Pod on Instagram. So yeah, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, this we'll has been be really sure great. to link all of those in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. I yeah. yeah. I echo Jeremy's sentiments. Thank you so much. All right, guys. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.